Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the fourth of seven events of distant friends and intimate enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. If you want to see the entire schedule, go to Reese's website at www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease, that's C-R-E-E-S. Despite their different histories and traditions, Russia and the United States share a history of ethnic and racial violence. Pogroms, race riots, ethnic cleansing, lynching, and other acts of violence have defined relations between dominant and minority ethnic and racial groups in each nation. Interestingly, the height of mass violence against Jews in Russia and African Americans in the United States occurred concurrently. To get a better understanding of this shared tradition of ethnic and racial violence, I turn to Stephen Zipperstein and Michael Pfeiffer for their insight. Stephen J. Zipperstein is the Daniel E. Koshland Professor in Jewish Culture and History at Stanford University. He's the author and editor of nine books, including The Jews of Odessa, A Cultural History, 1794 to 1881, and Imagining Russian Jewry, Memory, History, Identity. His most recent book is Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History, published by Livewright. Michael J. Pfeiffer is Professor of History at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the CUNY Graduate Center. He has authored or edited five books on the history of American and global lynching and collective violence. His most recent book is The Roots of Rough Justice, Origins of American Lynching, published by the University of Illinois Press. Here's Stephen Zipperstein and Michael Pfeiffer. All right, uh, Stephen and Michael, um, I wanted to start this discussion about racial violence, ethnic violence in the Russian Empire and in uh, the United States by first asking you, you know, what attracted you to your uh, respective topics on uh, pogroms and lynching? Uh, let's start with you, Michael. Uh, well, thanks uh, for the invitation uh, to, uh, to speak in this comparative forum, um, Sean, and, and uh, great to, uh, uh, to meet uh, Stephen and, and to, to, uh, to share this comparative analysis with you. So uh, I've been working on lynching and American racial violence uh, since the early 1990s. And at, at that time, actually, uh, very little had been written about this. Uh, there were uh, some studies uh, from the 1930s coming out of the anti-lynching activism of, of that era. 
uh, a few studies from the 1980s. Um, but it was a, a relatively unexplored uh, area at, at that time. And I was a, a, a quite young scholar at, at that point, and I, I think it became obvious to me uh, uh, that uh, this was, a, unfortunately, a very, very rich area uh, that would uh, allow us to sort of look into American society, some of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the darker aspects of, of, of the American character, and one thing that uh, that, that I, I focused upon and has, has has really stayed with me in, in the several decades since then is that lynching, while uh, certainly concentrated in the American South, was not merely a Southern phenomenon. And in fact, uh, it occurred uh, throughout the country meaningfully uh, in the American West, in the American Midwest. And so one thing I've, I've sought to do in my work, uh, beginning uh, with the dissertation and then in, in my book since then, uh, is to develop a regional context for American lynching, looking at the American South, but also looking at other regions. There also was lynching in the American Northeast, uh, far, far less of it there, uh, but, it, but, it, but it also occurred there. So it occurred throughout the country. Uh, so I've been very interested in, in you know, trying to understand the regional dimensions of this phenomenon. Now, I must say, uh, since the early 1990s, this field has really uh, uh, flowered and burgeoned, uh, and now many studies have been written, and the field is unrecognizable. Uh, uh, many, many aspects of, of, of the, the field have been, have been explored, uh, which is not to say that there aren't areas that, 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 that need further research. And Stephen, what, what uh, attracted you to looking at pogroms and particularly the story of Kishinev? Expected to actually to write this book. The um, I I I started an altogether different book. I started I signed a trade uh, a contract with a trade publisher to write a cultural history of Russian East European Jewry from the 18th century to the present. And then, in order not to suffer from chronic insomnia, I subdivided the book into various sections and gave myself four or five weeks permission to delve into each of them. And the Kishnev pogrom was, was one. And I, I knew the event had an outsized influence, but knew little else really about it. And it was actually an episode that I ended up researching extensively, but writing about very little in the book that persuaded me to write the book. And that was researching the uh, the Second Party Congress, the Social Democratic Party, um, a uh, immensely verbose Congress that begins in, in, in Brussels, ends up in London, occurs in August, September 1903. Of course, it's the formative uh, Congress of the Social Democratic Party is the one where Lenin is able to consolidate his power um, in an organizational vote and hence emerge as um, as the head of the Bolsheviks, those that the majority, he loses almost every other vote, but he uh, claims this this name and, and these sorts of terms of reference are immensely powerful. Of course, in, in politics, look at what Republicans have done to the term liberal um, over the last several decades. And um, uh, and it's 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 as is well known uh, what Lenin Lenin manages to gain a majority vote for his notion of the organization of the party by virtue of getting the so Jewish Socialist Labor Bund to leave with his five members. 
um, what I came to understand as I delved more and more into that episode was that the Bund in August, September 1903 was fighting with two hands tied behind its back because the prospect of giving up any autonomy uh, was inconceivable, all the more inconceivable than ever before because it was so preoccupied with the Kishnev pogrom and with the self-defense of Jews. And so realizing that the formative event in the history of Russian Marxism, too, was um, was shaped by Kishnev as the ether in the room, persuaded me that this was a story that was simply too good to tell. And I, I tore up. Uh, with some difficulty, the uh, the 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 uh, publisher's contract, and decided to write a book about violence, a topic that, as a Jewish historian, as it happens, I had all but assiduously avoided before for reasons that I can speak about a little bit later. Yeah, you know, Stephen, this is the thing with when in the beginning of your book, you go through this very uh, interesting and and meticulous uh, uh, look at the word pogrom and its its meaning right and it's it's historical meaning throughout and and the central place that it plays in in you know uh jewish experience so what is a pogrom well that that's really what the book is about um uh how, how long do you have uh, <laughs> so um uh, the the uh the, the dictionary definition um, as it came to be formulated over the course of the, the last century, um, is a um, government-condoned or coordinated attack against Jews, although the term, of course, was used um, um, for all sorts of riots and probably originates with the word grom or thunder, And uh, but we're not altogether sure about its precise origin. Um, and... Um, the problem with my answer thus far is that the um, the event that gives the term its universal meaning, uh, namely the Kishnev pogrom of April 1903, is in fact not a, a government-organized pogrom. And so the book is uh, devoted to a an incident that occurs, but the bulk of the book is about the meanings that are given subsequently to this event, uh, almost all of them inaccurate. It, it's, uh, it was a book that I finished, I think fortunately before the now ubiquitous term fake news, but it, it is a study in its own way of fake news. This was for a variety of reasons that I assume we'll talk about, um, most probably the best documented single event in the Russian Jewish past. And it was, as I've come to see it, the most mythologized. And so the interplay between what was knowable about it and what was known about it, that chasm is extraordinary. And the interplay between the two is um, at the core of my book. And and what makes a pogrom different than just you know, everyday forms of violence and harassment and discrimination against Jews in the Russian Empire. Uh, I mean, I would I would start here. The um, what comes to be presumed by so many Jews is uh, just to reformulate your question a bit: is what is the difference between a pogrom 
and everyday life in pre-1917 Russian um, Russia for Jews in pre-1917 Russia? And the answer comes to be widely believed is no difference at all. And in one review of my book, uh, a reviewer wrote that she had assumed, based on conversations with her 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 mother or grandmother, that her family came from the, the town called Pogrom, because all all she had ever heard was that uh, that she uh, that's all she had ever heard about that town, and so there's a kind of um, as I come I've subtle interplay in the book that I sought to write between taking an event very seriously and then trying to argue that um, um, that this event does not represent um, the entire portrait of pre-1917 Russian Jewry, even though the event was a heinous, violent event. And I hope that this is a beginning to your, uh, beginning answer to your question. Now, now, Michael, you know, uh, types of, of popular violence, popular justice, uh, and of course, racial violence in America comes in many forms. Uh, what What is lynching and how do you define it and distinguish it from these other types of violence? Well, lynching, like uh, Pogrom, uh, has, the meaning of this term has evolved um, over, over time, and it, apparently uh, the, the term Lynching is American in origin uh, from the 18th century, late 18th century. Uh, by the mid 19th century, it, it comes to mean a, a summary uh, killing, a summary collective killing. Uh, early 19th century, it, it's, a, it's a summary attack of some kind, summary collective punishment. Uh, non lethal, typically non lethal, but by the 1830s, 1840s, uh, there's a transformation in the use of the term. And it, it comes to mean a, a summary killing, usually synonymous with a hanging. Uh, and then in the uh, the next few decades, it becomes uh, racialized, uh, becomes thoroughly racialized. Uh, scholars uh, differ in definitions, but the, the the definition that I have used in my work and that has been used by many uh, lynching historians is uh, a definition that was adopted by anti-lynching activists at Tuskegee, Alabama in 1940, uh, and it argues that a lynching is, a, is an illegal killing committed by a group of people in service to justice, race, or tradition, and group is defined as three or more people, but that is complicated, and there are some things that look like lynchings uh, that involve uh, only two perpetrators. Uh, uh, for example, the, uh, the, the murder of Emmett Till in 1955, it's actually unclear how many people were involved, but it might have been only two people, um, maybe assisted by some other other people. It, it's it's unclear, but there are situations like that where it, it's something that you know it, it, it's it, it is pretty much a lynching, uh, but it doesn't fit this this definition that you have to have three or more people. Now, I think in terms of the comparison um, with Kishinev, uh, probably the most apt comparison. I'm sure we'll get into this is. What in the American context, uh, what are called race riots, uh, and so, you know, as a as a, a scholar of, of, of collective violence, there are uh, some differences between race riots and lynchings, which we can get into in a bit. Uh, but again, this is the definition that, that is used by most historians, which is that a lynching is a collective group killing 
motivated by justice, race, or tradition. Well, let me ask you then, what, what's the distinction between the lynching and, and a race riot? The uh, distinction uh, has to do with the targeting. So in a lynching, the targeting is somewhat narrow, and it's what uh, social scientists um, would call an individual liability. So the lynch mob uh, is seeking to kill just one person or maybe several people who are sort of nearly, nearly focused upon for some particular reason. Uh, whereas a race riot uh, is about targeting the entire group. So uh, targeting all African Americans, for example, in the uh, East St. Louis uh, race riot of 1917, which is discussed actually in Stephen's book, that incident. Uh, also, the Springfield, Illinois race riot of 1908, also discussed in Stephen's book, is another example of that sort of episode. Uh, also very well known, and particularly recently has been in the news, the, the uh, Tulsa massacre of 1921 is another sort of classic example of a, of a race riot where the white community targeted the entire African-American community and, and, and killed dozens, if not hundreds, uh, of African-Americans. So I think uh, the ra race riot in the American context is similar to what uh, happened in, in Kishinev. However, there is overlap between lynchings and race riots. So sometimes race riots included lynchings, and sometimes lynchings evolved into race riots. So there's sort of a continuum uh, where, you know, uh, we can we can make distinctions between these these two cut these two categories of collective violence, but sometimes one sort of moves into the other, and uh, there's sort of a, 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 a fuzzy gray area. Just to break in, Sean, um, it, it, one of the features of both lynching and pogroms is that it's as often as not the victims are blamed for the violence. And um, and as different as the situation of African Americans in America is, and the situation of Jews in pre-revolutionary Russia is, and we'll get into some of the similarities and differences, no doubt later on. Um, in both instances, the perpetrators, as often as not, see themselves as victims. And the victims are seen as perpetrators. Um, in the case of Russia, as often as not, it's uh, because Jews are seen as economic exploiters, as people who take advantage of Russian drunkenness, as um, mysteriously um, less, far less susceptible than Russians to, to liquor for perhaps all kinds of magical reasons. Um, and um, and in the United States, uh, and Michael can c correct me, I'm somewhat of a novice here, but I did devote a chapter of my book to this, but I'm worried about speaking about lynching in Michael's presence. Um, the, um, um, it's often um, um, uh, 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 sexual um, 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 excesses, um, uh, African-Americans um, working for city bosses, um, economic competition um, um, is often blamed for the very violence wreaked on the people who are suffering violence. And so in that respect, there is a typological similarity and one that ends up being noticed by uh, um, um, the, 
the, the radicals, often Jewish radicals, who I discussed in the last chapter of my book, who actually draw a connection, a direct connection between pogroms and lynching and contribute um, to the creation of what comes to be the, the NAACP in 1909. I think this is a really, really important point that both of these forms of violence are, are justified by the perpetrators as as themselves being victims of these others. Uh, Michael, can you expand on that more in, in the American context? You know, I, I think Stephen's absolutely correct in his analysis that, um, you know, certainly as, as white communities in the United States turned to lynching or race riots, they, they, they certainly were uh, seeking to, to cast blame on African-Americans to, to, uh, to, to, to blame the victims um, in, a, in, a, in a variety of ways and for, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, as, as Stephen suggested, sometimes uh, this was sort of naked economic competition, but, but even there, you know, some, some sort of uh, pretext is, is, is created um, uh, and, and is, is, is used to, to, to justify the, the resort to violence. Uh, so, you know, I think this is, this is absolutely correct that, that, that in this way we see um, a, a real point of, of, of similarity. Um, in, in these in these two different cultural contexts, you know, you I mean, not to draw a contemporary um, comparison, though I I'm inclined to draw a contemporary comparison. But we even see today how, in the wake of all sorts of incidents where blacks are actually victimized, um, one of the parties in contention for the, for the presidential election has turned the entire story into um, of suburban whites being victimized and um and one could see some echoes of of what michael and i are talking about in the past yeah and i definitely want to treat these echoes in more detail in in a bit um but one of the things that is also striking too that even you know this this idea that the the victims that the perpetrators see themselves as victims, it also is, speaks to the feeling that there is a lack of uh, the role of the state or the role of of some sort of authority to uh, to deal with you know these communities right that are victimized. Uh, and and Stephen, you pointed out that you know the the standard view of Kishinev is that it was orchestrated and perpetrated by the Russian government. Um, so what? What talk about some of more of the underlying conditions that uh, that contribute to this type of violence occurring in terms of you know the, the role of the state or the lack of the state and ideas of you know broadly speaking justice and 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 violence. So it's been well known by imperial Russian historians for years that the imperial state had far fewer police, for example, on the ground than, um, than, um, per, uh, than the population of Fran- than France did, and um, proportionally speaking. And, um, but the presumption that the Russian state was, um, was um, omnipotent uh, was a crucial factor in holding it together. So there you see a, um, a disjuncture between perception and reality with perception having real historical um, consequence. So um, consequently, it ends up being assumed by Jews too, that nothing of consequence actually happens on the Russian streets um, that the government isn't involved in. 
And this belief ends up being um, a resilient one, uh, resilient up until today, and um, um, shared by, by by so many Jews um, in in thinking about um, the, their ancestors' past. Um, so, uh, so despite the fact that we know that nothing worried the imperial state as much as uh, riots either urban or rural riots, and the bulk of so-called pogroms uh, actually were rural riots, not urban riots. And in fact, the, the imperial state is brought down to its knees in February 1917 by an urban riot. It has good reason to worry about such things. The notion that the government would actually ferment violence on its own streets is inconceivable, um, though in the midst of the uh, revolution of 1905-1906, there probably was some connivance between local authorities, not authorities in Petersburg necessarily, and um, and, um, and and rioters. Um, so um, so there's a, um, a, a an assumption on the part of Jews that the only reason why there there would be violence of the sort that emerges erupts in Kishnev in 1903, at the beginning of a century that is presumed to be a century of, of, of peace, the first riot, anti-Jewish riot of its sort in the 20th century um, is the only, the only credible explanation would could only be that the government was behind it. And what, what lends credence to this assumption is a document that surfaces a few weeks after the pogrom signed by Minister of Interior Pleve, um, um, a figure, a rather haughty figure, who Jews have every reason to loathe and who himself loathes Jews, but that's pretty much a, um, a consensual assumption on the part of, of most of Russian officialdom at the time, um, a, a document signed by Pleve uh, that essentially gives a green light to pogromists to, to riot on the streets of Kishnev. Um, what we've know and we've known for some time is that the documents of forgery and was um, most certainly written either by Jewish radicals or by those sympathetic to Jews who believed who believed with reason that if um, Pleve was was tied to a chair like in a scene in in homeland um, he, this is what um, he would say, and um, but he didn't say it. Um, the letter actually was even um, when it was first surfaced in the Times of London. Um, um, some in Pleva's own entourage believed that perhaps he, he he wrote it, but but there's no proof that he did. There's ample proof that he did 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 not. So um, um, this ends up providing the great proof text that the Russian government was fermenting violence. Killing Jews, raping Jewish 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 women on the streets of its own cities, which then has a significant impact on um, on on ensuring that there's relatively few restrictions on Jewish immigration to the United States. Well, into the the First World War, at the very time that Chinese um, immigration is restricted in 1900. And the Anti-Alien Act is enacted in England um, at more or less the same the same 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 period, and um, um, and it's um, and the Plevet letter also is a prime proof text in consolidating the Jewish belief 
that that a conservative regime is implacably opposed to Jews, and um, and so its its impact politically and otherwise is enormous, and um, and um, and it's a um, it's a forgery. And uh, just one last sentence: what I do in my book is I talk about the in a sense the dueling forgeries that. Um, 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 t- tumble from the rubble of the Kishinev pogrom, because in as much as the um, most uh, consequential um, anti-Jewish forgery of uh, the last century and perhaps this century too ends up being written um, um, and and published in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom, and that document. Is, is the one that comes to be called the Protocols of the Elders of, of, of Zion, which in itself is an attempt to understand what happens um, um, during it in the wake of the Kishna pogrom. Michael, you trace the the origins of of lynching, of course, in a in a European context, but it becomes particularly an American, you know, Amer- has American phenomenon, American features. So, what are the some of the the underlying things that allow for this type of violence to occur? Well, uh, here again, uh, the issue of state authority, I think, is is quite important, or the or the not so much the absence of state authority, but, but the peculiar way in which state authority is arranged in the American context. So a decentralized uh, a state arrangement um, allowing for local control, and particularly on, on issues of criminal justice and race, is, is really, really important. So in, in uh, my books, I, I trace how this, this uh, develops over time. And so uh, in slavery... Uh, the, the slaveholder had, had tremendous authority uh, uh, to, to physically punish slaves, even even to kill a slave. This this had legal color, legal legal authorization, uh, and there's a, a small practice of, of the lynching of enslaved blacks that that develops uh, in the years before the, the Civil War. But of course, slaves were uh, property. And they were valuable, and uh, so there was an incentive not to to lynch uh, slaves. Uh, yet this does create a precedent uh, that 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 exists uh, when emancipation occurs in the 1860s, when when slavery is ended, and we have a moment there of, of uh, it sort of depends on where which southern state, but we have a moment when the federal government does intervene for racial equality and to protect the rights of African-Americans. It's a brief moment, but it's a very important moment. And it's a moment when white Southerners lose control of politics. They lose control of the courts. And that is a a crucial time when uh, lynching emerges. Hundreds, if not thousands, and we don't even, we don't know the numbers, actually the the, the, the full numbers, uh, of African-Americans were lynched during the Reconstruction era. Uh, in in southern states, as white Southerners uh, sought to reclaim uh, control, which they which they did, which they did uh, by the by the uh, late eighteen seventies. So that is that is really the formative moment uh, for racial lynching in the U.S. And then uh, several decades later, eighteen nineties, we have the the onset of what is called the Jim Crow era. So racial segregation, legalized racial segregation, but as that comes on, we see 
white Southerners turn once again to, uh, to lynching violence. And in that context, white Southerners actually controlled the courts and uh, they, they controlled politics. But racial lynching has this, this symbolic meaning of sort of this, this, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this, this, you know, all these, 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 these extra meanings uh, of, 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 uh, of racialized performance and, and, and racialized punishment. And so 1890s through, uh, th- through the, the first several decades of the 20th century, again, we see the lynching of thousands of African Americans uh, in, in, in what becomes a performance of, of white supremacy. And you know, th- this occurs within the context of, of, of constant African American contestation of, of white authority. Uh, in, in the in the in the Jim Crow era, so as in the Russian context, um, the Imperial Russian context, uh, we have state authority, but we also have connivance in, in some in some contexts. Um, we have authorities uh, collaborating with mobs, uh, even if that's not accurate in the Kishinev context uh, necessarily. Uh, certainly, some, in the, I think the, probably some local authorities did. In, during the Kishinev pogrom, and no doubt in 1905-1906. Uh, but certainly, uh, in the American Southern context, uh, we have we have uh, sheriffs letting the lynch mobs into, into into jails and and refusing to to fire upon mobs, refusing to to use force to put down mobs, and and, and really actively uh, complicit with mobs in a lot of a lot of situations. Uh, so the whole issue of authority in the state is 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 quite uh, inter- intricate and complex. But there, there, again, there's this decentralized arrangement that allows uh, 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 the use of violence um, uh, uh, by, by uh, local white supremacists uh, to, to emerge in a really, really powerful way in the Southern context. And I just want to emphasize again, like I did at the beginning, that this, this certainly uh, this practice was, uh, was most concentrated in the American South, but it was not exclusive to the American South. So we do see... Lynch mobs of whites in in uh, the American Midwest. We see them sometimes in the in the American Northeast. Certainly in the American West. And I, I just wanted to 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 note that in in the context of the American West, we, we certainly see uh, some lynchings of African Americans. But but even more importantly, in the Western context, we see the lynchings of Mexican Americans, lynchings of hundreds of Mexican Americans, uh, beginning with the California Gold Rush uh, in the uh, early, 18, uh, early 1850s, uh, and then um, certainly as well in Texas uh, over the course of the 19th century into, into the 20th century. Uh, so uh, racial lynching in the U.S., certainly African Americans, the largest uh, group of victims, but also uh, 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 Mexican Americans, uh, also Native Americans um, uh, uh, fell victim uh, to, to lynch mobs. Michael, how do you, how do you explain the the notion, the way in which otherwise victimized people come to be seen as far more potent than the victims? You know, the even in Solzhenitsyn's late life book, uh, Russians and Jews Together, still untranslated, um, he finds he it's all built around a parody between the power of Jews and the power of 
of Russia and the Russian regime, where ultimately the clear suggestion is is that Jews are more powerful than um, than Russians. Um, I've always been intrigued, uh, not to draw a direct compa- comparison, though I suppose I am, um, uh, with the um, Fox News show Outnumbered, where even after you actually elect a president, you're always outnumbered. You're simply outnumbered. Those forces are potent. You may have the army and all of the apparatus and government, but they have CNN. And um, and um, so just the, the way in which in African-Americans in the States, Jews in a pre-revolutionary Russian context somehow are seen as eerily powerful, even though objectively um, there's ample evidence well, that they're not. And, and I and just before you answer that, Michael, I think also in the American context, you have this double move where you have Jews controlling African Americans, right? So you have also this this conspiracy, you know, from the protocols also into this uh, the issue of race in America. Right, right. No, I think this is a this is a course, it's a crucial question in both both contexts. In both contexts, we see these these uh, racialized. Phobias, uh, paranoid phobias that, that become incredibly powerful, uh, and that, that uh, are used to justify uh, uh, the violence, and, and that have this great life that that that, that uh, just lives on and on, has many many permutations, uh, many of which are still with us. So, no, I I, I think that this is a, a, a crucial dynamic in both of these contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a question someone asks, and, and I, I want to apply it to, to both of your contexts, and, and that is, were many lynchings, and here we can say also anti-Jewish violence in, in Russia, motivated by a desire to confiscate property? Um, yes, and, and uh, certainly uh, there are many Southern lynchings that involved resentment of African-American uh, farmers who had managed to get some land, and, which was very difficult, certainly in the context of the late 19th century and the emergence of sharecropping, but, but a handful did, uh, and you know, accumulated um, uh, uh, some, some property, were seen as economically successful. There's actually a sort of a, a, uh, a, a subdivision of lynching, as it were, called white capping, which, which involved... Uh, Lower class white farmers uh, attacking uh, black farmers, and, and this was certainly very, very explicitly about resentment of, of economic competition. But uh, there certainly were were many more lynchings that, that involved uh, just just some kind of resentment of, of African American success. Uh, the the Rosewood massacre in Florida, northern Florida, in 1927, made into the, the film Rosewood in the late 1990s. Uh, had overtones of this as well, where uh, you had whites resenting what was perceived as black economic success. So, so certainly that is a a uh, context in 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 many of these of these incidents. Yeah. Um, so in the particular incident that I I speak about in my book, the Kishna pogrom um, in of nineteen oh three, much of the violence and it's 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 um, it's an event that really lasts. For a day and a half, and um, with the epicenter of the violence in the poorest part of um, the city, at least the poorest Jewish part of the city, 
with a, a huge amount of of robbery going on during the most violent um, um, period of the pogrom on the late morning, early afternoon of the second day before the army, the Russian army is called in to put down the dis disturbance. And there are, are many peasants who come in from nearby villages to ransack um, Jewish homes. And um, so that certainly ends up being a crucial part of the violence. The, by and large, the epicenter of the violence is actually on four or five intersecting streets, really alleyways in this neighborhood. Um, and th there, we end up having more information uh, about the inventory of these houses, et cetera, than we have about any other aspect probably of the Russian Jewish past. But it's worth noting that um, Though the term, the definition of pogrom as a government instigated or condoned action is not accurate with regard to the Kishna pogrom, it ends up becoming more accurate um, with regard to um, later violence. Um, um, to, to more accurate, though not altogether accurate, with regard to the massive wave of pogroms that break out during the um, abortive Russian Revolution of 1905. And then, um, uh, still more accurate, though this is complicated, during the massive wave of anti-Jewish violence after the fall of the Romanov regime uh, between 1918 and 1920, um, where um, in the midst of the um, disintegration of any authority, but in the midst of contested authority, um, Jews, um, Jewish life in what was the Pale of Settlements um, uh, becomes um, utterly wretched, um, with perhaps as many as 200,000 Jews um, being slaughtered and perhaps as many women being raped um, in incidents that um, really have yet to be uh, thoroughly uh, documented. And then eventually um, the uh, term, the event that gives the term its, um, its, um, its perhaps most worldwide meeting the, um, in November 1938, Kristallnacht, um, is, of course, a government-coordinated attack uh, against Jews where property is massively ransacked, uh, Jewish ritual centers are destroyed. Um, and, um, and so um, the attack on Jewish property seen as acquired by insidious and ostensibly unfair means ends up being a crucial aspect of what comes to be associated with pogroms. Now, the pogrom and, and lynching and racial violence more generally become emblematic of uh, Jewish and black, ex black experience, uh, so much so that, that, Stephen, you said that you avoided writing about pogroms for that, you know, that very reason, reason because it's... Not, not, for, not for that reason. The, um, my, my generation of Jewish historians, we came of age... Um, influenced with by the rise of the history of women, the history of all sorts of underprivileged people. And we wanted to give Jews voice. And, um, and, and for a whole variety of reasons, partly because of those historical influences, partly because 
since so many of us, though not all of us, were ourselves Jewish and were aware that to the extent to which the Jewish past was spoken about in general terms by Jews, it was spoken about in terms of inordinate violence, we were intent on filling out the picture and speaking about other aspects. And it was for this reason, among others, that uh, I and many of my peers um, have not uh, written uh, about violence, uh, though several of us are doing so now for reasons that could be uh, discussed. And um, so we were, in some sense, reacting to the collective preoccupations of our own people by trying to, to fill out the picture and perhaps in some ways, in retrospect, overreacting. But I interrupted your question. No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But it, it, so the question is, is, is then for you, you know, in terms of the, the subject at the time, not just in terms of memory and understandings of, you know, uh, the experience of, of Jews writ large, but in terms of the people who, who you know, you have this massive immigration out of the, the Russian Empire after Kishinev. Um, talk about the, 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 how these forms of violence became determinants in terms of identity and experience for, uh, for Jews in the Russian Empire. And, and also for African-Americans, for Michael's case. Well, I mean, to turn the question around a bit, and, and this was a, a, an aspect of uh, Jewish history that I, I wasn't really familiar with until I started working on this book. What I came to begin to study, and the, the topic is enormously complicated and deserves considerable more study, is the way in which Jews, especially Jews on the left, come to understand the um, African-American experience through the lens of the Jewish experience. And, um, and Kishnev in this respect, or what comes to be understood as the Kishnev pogrom is a, a formative influence. And, um, and, and this I, I talk about in the last chapter of my book, where in the, in the immediate wake of the pogrom, initially generated by Russian apologists, apologists of the Russian government, um, um, we begin to see um, all sorts of articles in the Western press, certainly in the, the Russian press, are making the case that, um, if anything, the, uh, the violence in America, which ends up being the epicenter of uh, criticism of the Russian government's response to the Kishinev pogrom, um, violence in America um, against against uh, blacks is far greater than um, the uh, violence wreaked on Jews in 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 Russia, and um, the Kishinev pogrom um, ends up eliciting massive sympathy on the American scene for a whole variety of reasons it ends up being um, uh, uh, the Russian government, the American government issues a protest against the Russian government um, um, uh, because of the Kishinev pogrom. Um, um, the response is um, is overwhelming, and especially in contrast to the very tepid at best response of government authorities to lynching. And, um, and it's, um, 
uh, and and Michael would know about this measurably more than than me. But the resistance against criticizing uh, lynching exists even in left wing circles. At the time, the Socialist Party, from what I understand, the American Socialist Party it does not come out in defense of um, of blacks with regard to lynching because of uh, the the possible competition between blacks and whites in the in the in the workspace. And um, and um, even Booker T. Washington, who comes out and condemns the Kishna pogrom, refuses to condemn outright a number of lynchings, even near uh, his own hometown. And um, and there are a slew of independent African-American newspapers that I ended up becoming acquainted with when I was writing this book that ends up ask, uh, arguing, saying that, yes, the Kishna pogrom was bad, but um, how does one explain this massive outcry in the United States um, um, with regard to an event that that's happened many thousands of miles away from the states in contrast to the quiescence with regard to to lynching and um and so this comparison ends up surfacing and then ends up being consolidated by an extraordinarily interesting couple, uh, William English Walling, who ends up being the first chair of the NAACP, founded in 1909, and uh, and especially his wife, Anna Strinsky, who, like so many other women who have an impact on history, ends up becoming obscure, uh, though while uh, her husband becomes at least um, temporarily f- famous. And it's Anna Strunsky who actually draws a connection, a direct connection on the um, on the stage of Cooper Union, where Abraham Lincoln, I believe, once spoke, um, uh, drawing a connection between the hideousness of, of hideousness of pogroms and comparing pogroms to uh, to lynching, and that ends up serving as the. Uh, moments that inspires a couple of years later the creation of the NAACP. So um, um, now um, her understanding of what how why pogroms occur is based on a misunderstanding. Presuming she presumes that the government, the Russian government, is behind it, but nonetheless, this is translated into one of the more formative moments in um, in American left liberal politics. And Michael, talk about the intersections and and issues of experience and identity, but also resistance uh, in terms of with the phenomenon of of racial violence in America. Yeah, well, you know, certainly lynching uh, uh, becomes emblematic of American racism, and and for African Americans, um, this this becomes a key a key signifier, and certainly in, in the larger American culture, lynching comes to signify racial. Oppression, uh, and you know this this happens through the work of activists uh, like Ida B. Wells, and uh, in the eighteen beginning in the eighteen nineties, and then later the uh, the NAACP, and of course as Stephen has just uh, outlined for us, and as he does uh, uh, wonderfully in his book, the 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 formative uh, moment of the of the NAACP does coincide with. With race riots, lynchings in the U.S. and, and uh, the sort of discourse about about Kishinev. so so there's there's a point of intersection uh, there. Uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, there was a very sort of a, a very well publicized lynching that occurs just a month month or so after Kishinev, and that is the the lynching of an African American man, George White, in Wilmington, Delaware, in June 1903, and uh, he was he was burned alive by a, a large mob. The mob was incited by a Presbyterian minister. And this, this drew uh, 
national attention, international attention, much more attention than than, than most uh, uh, American lynchings drew at the time. And comparisons were drawn with, with, with what had happened in Kishina. And so uh, African-American editors uh, certainly noticed this and, and, and made the comparison. And this ultimately led uh, President Theodore Roosevelt to, to make a statement uh, denouncing lynching as he had denounced uh, the pogrom in, in, in Kishinev. See, I, 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 I miss that. And um, just about Ida Wells, she, she writes a diary of this St. Louis lit, um, uh, um, um, anti-black uh, riots, doesn't she? Uh, very detailed. And I, I, I don't talk about this in my book, but I was really struck by how so many of the moments that Ida Wells records are identical. The terminology is identical to the terminology used by pogromists in Kishnev. And um, uh, as recorded by Chaim Nachman Bialik, um, the poet who chronicled the Kishnev pogrom and, and others, the typological similarities between the way in which rioters announce themselves, um, announce their, their intentions, uh, is strikingly similar. And I didn't quite know what to do with that in, in, in my book, but I, I give that to you, Michael. Oh, thank you. <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the, this uh, East St. Louis uh, race riot, I think, is really in 1917 is and I only know a little bit about it, but it really does um, hearken to Kishinev in, in many respects in terms of the fact that the African-American uh, population is if I understand correctly, and you can you both can correct me is is kind of cleansed from from East St. Louis. Isn't that correct? Uh, yeah, yes, and, and there's, there's, there's a, actually a very significant political context there as well, trying to suppress the black vote that was becoming important in, in the, the, uh, the politics in that, in that county. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, a massive race riot. Uh, again, we don't, it's like Tulsa, 1921, we do not actually know how many uh, African Americans were, 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 were murdered in that, in that riot, but it's probably several hundred um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 an attempt to uh, sort of expel this entire entire group from this locality. So it, it does look like a pogrom. You know, one of the things that struck me um, is this overlap, this historical period, is a period of 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 you know anti-Jewish violence, uh, anti-black violence, uh, but also a, a period of ethnic violence. More generally, this period of the late nineteenth, you know, latter last quarter of the nineteenth century into the you know first half of the twentieth century. Uh, how do you uh, each of you put the your respective forms of, ra- of racial and ethnic violence in a in a more global context, uh, Michael? We certainly see things that look like um, American lynchings, race riots, and in many global contexts. Uh, but but certainly this this. Uh, this period of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, you know, in the, certainly the, in the in the American context, we have we have uh, uh, we, we just see a tremendous amount of racially motivated, motivated violence uh, in in that in that period, um, and uh, so you know it, it's it, it's 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 due to a variety of of societal uh, socioeconomic factors and, and sort of the you know the um, uh, development of the of the American state and in a particular way in which it was developing in, in, in that context and the, the failure to adequately deal with with, with diversity, uh, particularly racial diversity, 
Um, but many analogs uh, globally. And I, uh, two years ago, or three years ago, I published a, a two-volume uh, uh, set uh, looking at uh, lynching in global context. And, and we do see sort of similar things in, 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 in many contexts uh, internationally. Uh, I, I'm not sure that, I think it's a very good question. I'm not sure that I could provide a very good answer I, um, there are features to um, violence that end up being escalating, that end up escalating uh, in part because of technology, but technology can't explain it all. Um, I would begin with the interplay pointed out um, um, in Jan Gross's brilliant book, Neighbors, um, um, the interplay between familiarity and ferocity the way in which uh, familiarity in the context of Kishinev and many other um, events of anti-Jewish violence and violence against other people um, can actually give way to ferocious violence. Uh, also in the case of, of Kishinev, uh, we have many incidents of Jews running into the courtyards, the homes of non-Jews, um, unannounced, of course, and being protected. And... Um, uh, I, I should note, just as an aside, that what I've come to conclude, at least in the wake of looking closely at the Kishinev pogrom, that with regard to attitudes toward Jews, and I suspect this is true for other ethnic minorities, there are a welter of assumptions that are shared about such people. In the case of Jews, the very observations that could be seen, could be interpreted as inimical, could be seen also as admiring. A Jewish ostensible economic expertise could be admired and loathed um, uh, the Jewish capacity, the ostensible capacity to avoid um, 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 liquor could be seen as an admirable trait or a mysteriously bizarre trait. What's required in these situations and certainly what was required in Kishnev were um, either authorities or, if you will, ideologues, intellectuals to organize otherwise incohate complicated attitudes into a coherent picture. And, um, and um, that, I think, is certainly what happens in Kishnev, where a group of far, far right ideologues is almost certainly responsible for both fermenting the pogrom and producing what comes to be known as the protocols of, of the elders of, of, of Zion. And, and I think we're seeing um, a not dissimilar um, 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 a process occurring in our own country um, uh, uh, today. Um, so the, the interplay between familiarity and ferocity, and then the accelerating nature of violence, where once it occurs, it could build on itself. And this is certainly true with regard to anti-Jewish violence in Russia, where far more um, Jews are killed on the streets of Odessa and elsewhere in 1905 um, than ever before um, in, 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 a, in a Russian context. I, I would say as an aside that I think one of the reasons among many of the notoriety of the Kishna pogrom is the use of photography in newspapers. And in as much as some 47 Jews are killed in total on the streets of Kishnev 
1903, two others die of wounds uh, incurred a little bit later, you could actually picture all those 47 Jews. You can't picture 600 Jews on the streets of Odessa. You can't, they can't be captured in one photograph. And so typologically not dissimilar, if you will, from the way which Anne Frank ends up representing the Holocaust, because you could envision far better the death of this girl than you can envision six million dead. Um, it, there's this curious interplay between the relatively small number of Jews killed in Kishnev and the notoriety of the pogrom, but the numbers end up accelerating and accelerating to such an extent that in the wake of the disintegration of the Russian empire, hundreds of thousands are killed, perhaps hundreds of thousands are raped. And so there is something about the way in which violence builds on itself. I don't know if this is true in the context that Michael studies that um, um, deepens the violence, extends the violence in in ways that we've seen over the course of the last century and beyond. Yeah, and and, there, and just it, before I have you comment, Michael, in the Russian context and during the Russian Civil War, of course, this this violence is mil- highly militarized as well, right? And and then after, Michael, do you have uh, anything you'd like to add? Well, it, it certainly uh, in the American context as well, the, the violence gains a certain momentum. And um, yeah, there, there, in the American Southern uh, context specifically, we have what are called uh, um, spectacle lynchings, which, which have uh, attracted a lot of attention, quite understandably, because these, these lynchings um, have had thousands of uh, people come to watch them, come on, on maybe several thousand uh, uh, come to watch and, and take special trains to, to, to attend the lynchings, publicized in advance, and, and uh, in, in, in many instances uh, uh, photographs were taken, these were reproduced on, on postcards that were sent as a way to, to celebrate this performative act of, of white supremacy. And, you know, the, the, actually these spectacle lynchings, um, they, they loom very large as, as sort of the larger significant signification of, 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 of American lynching in terms of the actual number of lynchings that were spectacle lynchings. It was a, it was a minority of, of, of all lynchings were, were as highly ritualized, uh, involved so many, so many people watching and participating. Uh, but, but the spectacle, spectacle lynchings that occurred were so well publicized and, and so powerful in their searing imagery of the performance of white supremacy that they became very, very important and, and did, did much cultural work and, and certainly influenced uh, uh, other lynchings that, that were occurring that, that only had maybe several hundred people uh, participating. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a momentum to the violence and you have lynchers imitating other lynchers. There's sort of a blueprint that develops for what a, what a lynching entails and, and there's, a, there's a, a highly ritualistic aspect and that, that varies based upon incidents. Uh, uh, but um, uh, certainly, uh, there, there is a way in which the, the violence cascades and, and develops a momentum all its own. Yeah, I want to turn to a comment in the chat because I, I shared the uneasiness, and and the comment is 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 a concern about the term race riot to describe events in the United States because uh, race riot makes it 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 makes it sound like both races are instigators, right? There's a certain sense of of equity in the term. Um, you know, and, and the person commenting, and I've wondered about this too, is that perhaps we should describe these in, in the American context as, as pogroms, 
So I don't know if you have any thoughts about about the terminology that we use, Michael, for for these acts. Well, it, it is a it is a problematic terminology, and it, it's just it's just what has developed historically, what has used, been used historically, and it and is used in the scholarship. But but the but what the meaning of race riot has has changed over time as well, and you know sort of who, the, the, the dynamics uh, certainly shifted historically as well. Uh, in some contexts, you, you actually did have both groups participating, uh, uh, maybe not on equal terms, but but in, in really really uh, sort of meaningful terms. So, for example, the the so-called Chicago race riot of 1919, you have you have both black and white communities. Uh, certainly, it's instigated by the the, the white community uh, after um, you know, there's an incident where a young African American man is is um, uh, he. He's swimming, uh, Lake Michigan Beach, and he swims into a so-called white area, and um, he's attacked. And uh, and then this this cascades into a, a larger riot on the, uh, the south side of Chicago. But it's not just the white community attacking the black community. The uh, African-American community does respond uh, with, with force and does attack whites, and some whites are killed. So in, in, in some of these incidents, we do, we do see both communities uh, participating uh, with arms and with, with with force, but I agree. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a term that that uh, comes to us from you know from from the historical past. It's it's a very imprecise term. The the term is then used uh, from the 1960s on to describe riots uh, in African American communities. Uh, you know, for example, Detroit, uh, uh, 1968 and. You work 1967, Watts in L.A. in 1965, and that's an entirely different kind of riot, and, and it's it, it's uh, the African American community rebelling, as it were, against against white oppression, and and so 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 that's that's very different than what we see, you know, uh, Tulsa 1921, Chicago 1919, East St. Louis 1917. So it's a very imprecise term. I agree, it is it is a problematic term in some ways. One of the things that, and, and this I think also comes to to my own research of of the Communist Party of America in the twenties and thirties, particularly once they start organizing in the South, that racial violence is bound up with uh, anti communism, and of course we know in the Russian context, uh, anti Jewish violence is bound up with anti you know against revolutionaries, particularly of course the pogroms after the assassination of Alexander II, and of course after the the Russian Revolution, the idea of the Judeo Bolshevik conspiracy. Uh, so uh, talk about the the relationship between uh, you know anti-radical or anti-revolutionary responses and the use of racial violence. Uh, Michael, can you start? Well, yes. I mean, certainly by the 1930s and 40s, this becomes a, a major trope for, for white Southern conservatives, um, you know, uh, uh, defending Jim Crow and, 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 and trying to even defend lynching in some, in some, in some contexts. And, uh, so, arguing that that uh, you know that that, that uh, communist subversives are, are active among African Americans, and 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 then of course the the as you know, Sean, the the involvement of of uh, the American Communist Party in the defense of say the Scottsboro Boys in the 1930s in Alabama, uh, it does feed that particular narrative. 
And, and also the civil again, rights movement in the 50s yes, and 60s. Yes, so certainly uh, it's just a bit later with the civil rights movement. So constantly raising this, this um, you know, this fear of communist subversion and, and you know, somehow arguing that the, the whole civil rights movement is, is a communist plot and that's being driven by, by communists uh, in, in the Soviet Union. Um, that, that becomes a, a, a major, major trope. Absolutely. So, so anti-radicalism does become fastened to a defensive of, of white supremacy. You know, with regard to Jews, the relationship between the perception of Jews as subversive and the reality of Jews as subversive is um, um, uh, obviously immensely complicated. And um, a case in point is the uh, relationship between the outbreak of pogroms in the wake of the assassination of Alexander of uh, Alexander II in 1881, and the involvement of Jews. There was there was one Jew involved, Hesse Helfman, um, the so-called in Russian popular culture, the fat Hesse Helfman, because she was uh, pregnant at the time that she was brought to trial, and uh, and consequently the death sentence against her was commuted. Uh, she died in prison, um, and. Um, but the assumption was that that the the widespread assumption was was that Jews killed the the Tsar. Now there was one Jew implicated. Um, she she hid the assassins, but did Jews kill Alexander II? And um, so the notion of Jews being the fundamentally subversive ones with regard to the assassination of Alexander II. The relationship between that and violence wreaked onto Jews is not a direct one. And one has to assume that the notion of Jews being subversive is a, is uh, has much deeper roots in um, in 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 Western culture. And um, it's not the only aspect of non-Jewish Jewish relations, but it is an aspect of 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 not Jewish non-Jewish relations. Um, um, and so, of course, there's a connection between the preponderance of Jews in the leadership of, of Russian Marxism um, and, um, and the rise of anti-Semitism, but a direct, simple, linear relationship, I would deny there is a relationship concomitantly between the um, um, the um, influence, say, of George Soros and um, an anti-Jewish uh, sentiment in East Central Europe, but is uh, George Soros the only multi-billionaire who's involved in politics in um, in the world? Far from it. And so, um, so somehow um, the names of Soros and Trotsky and Hesse Helfman rise to the surface, um, um, while um, other grayer figures, non-Jewish figures, end up receding into obscurity. And um, that's true in all those contexts. So um, I, a direct relationship between Jewish involvement in ostensibly subversive activity and antipathy toward Jews, I would deny some relationship obviously exists and um and um and uh uh that's been a uh 
an issue that has uh, preoccupied um, um, many for many, many years and no doubt will continue to to do so. We just have a few more minutes. Um, and I want to ask, uh, you know, the memory of this and and the legacies of this that are still with us. I mean, Stephen, you've you've referenced the present uh, several times in our conversation today. Uh, how did these these this violence still hang over us in our our present day life? Uh, Michael, can you start, please? Well, in terms of American lynching, uh, again, I've been working on this for for three decades, and so it's been fascinating watching this evolve. And lynching didn't. It, it, it certainly had a presence in, in, in American culture, uh, historical memory in the early 1990s. But, but uh, the, the sort of the, the overt efforts to memorialize lynching in, in, in America's past this is this has developed in very significant ways, particularly since 2000, the year 2000 or so. Um, you know, certainly that this had, this had always uh, uh, survived in, in uh, African American oral histories, for example maybe in a different way in, in, in sort of oral memory in, in the white community. Um, but in terms of a, a concerted effort to remember these events, this is quite recent. And, and uh, it, it really it really wasn't much that had been done until until about the year 2000. And uh, as some of you may recall, in the around 2000, there were several exhibitions of lynching photographs that got a lot of attention. And uh, these have been, I think, quite rightly uh, critiqued for, in some ways, replicating the lynchers' gaze upon the lynched person's body, which, which certainly the, those photographs do create that, that sort of dynamic. Uh, but these exhibitions certainly raised uh, a lot of awareness, and, and certainly, in, in, certainly in Washington, for example. So uh, sort of coming out of that uh, experience, um, uh, the U.S. Senate adopted uh, an apology in, in 2005 for its failure to pass anti-lynching legislation. Uh, and there, there's actually still, I don't think it's even, even quite through yet, but there's, there's, a, there's a current effort for the, the Senate to finally uh, uh, come on board against lynching. I, and I, I think they're still kind of finalizing that. Um, and it's been, it's been underway for several years. So it, it, it's still not. I, it's still not uh, through yet uh, that the Senate is not officially on record against against lynching. Um, but anyway, uh, they, the U.S. Senate did did apologize in 2005, and that that was an outgrowth of, of these exhibitions in the early 2000s. But more recently, uh, the the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, which is a nonprofit in Montgomery, Alabama, has really taken the lead uh, in creating uh, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, uh, which is informally known as the National Lynching Memorial. And they are uh, seeking to memorialize every lynching of an African-American that occurred in the U.S. Uh, This is done uh, in several ways, but I think most significantly and interestingly by collecting soil from the site where the lynching occurred. Uh, and, and they're going to have this uh, soil at the uh, at the lynching memorial in Montgomery, uh, but also efforts to, uh, to to put up markers in 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 all of these these many many places where this this happened in the U.S. Uh, in a few weeks, I'm going to be speaking uh, before 
uh, the 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 Maryland Lynching Memorial Project, which is an effort to memorialize the lynchings of African Americans that occurred in the state of Maryland. So there are efforts underway in in in, in many many states right now, and this is very very recent. I mean, this is this is the last five six years. Uh, so in in again until 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 really now. Uh, Stories of lynching have survived in oral histories, particularly in the black community, uh, but there has been no real effort to, to sort of publicly uh, remember these events. And this is, this is really shifting uh, uh, as we speak, which I think is quite exciting. You know, an issue of contemporary relevance that is immensely complicated and that probably is unfair to raise in the last five minutes of this conversation that I've thought about a lot since finishing this book is the issue of, of, of black perceptions of Jews and Jewish perceptions of blacks. And, um, and there are a whole welter of reasons why Jews end up being prominent in the um, effort to ameliorate racism in the United States. But as um, suggested by the historian of religion, Michael Alexander, and also the Hebrew University American Jewish historian, Elie Lederhandler, um, I think part of what is at work is um, a befuddlement on the part of American Jews um, once American Jews settle in the United States, that despite intermittent, sometimes extreme um, um, anti-Semitism, the America is a place where others are hated far more than Jews, Catholics, and Blacks. And to some extent, to some extent, and I wouldn't exaggerate this, the ongoing Jewish preoccupation with Blacks is a way of, in a sense, normalizing the experience of Jews, understanding and uh, understanding the American experience as recognizable for Jews, because in so many ways, the American Jewish experience is out of kilter uh, for Jews. But in, in America, it's Blacks who are, who are treated in the way in which Jews see their, them having been treated through their history. Um, and um, and as I wouldn't want to collapse the Jewish preoccupation with Blacks into that category, into that framework, but I think there's something at work there. And then concomitantly, the Black preoccupation with Jews is enormously complicated. Um, uh, the prominence of, of anti-Jewish sentiment in, um, in, in Farrakhan, who's far more influential than I think many of us credit him as being, is, um, is, a, is a fascinating phenomenon. The way in which Farrakhan represents, I think, for, for a significant number of Blacks who don't necessarily espouse his, agree with his thinking, but see him as a, a personification of unadulterated rage um, in a setting where rage is altogether legitimate. And, uh, and of course, in Farrakhan's case, when he says unpleasant things about Jews, he almost invariably gets on the front pages of newspapers. When he says similarly unpleasant things about gays, it's um, there's barely there's barely barely any reaction at all. Certainly not on the front pages, and um, so it's a it's a relationship that is enormously complicated, um, and uh, and one that really bears uh, a kind of of. Of scrutiny of a sort that um, that I wasn't um, sufficiently aware of before digging into this material and writing this book. 
Uh, I, I want. I have one last question that somebody has posted, and and I hope it. You know, we only have a few minutes left, and I hope you are willing to stick around and, and answer it. And that is, and I'm going to reformulate it. And and this is the idea that what role does this violence play in consolidating the nationalism of the perpetrator? So in the American case, what role does this violence? You know, especially since at the period of time that it's a lot of lynching is occurring. It's also a time when whites aren't consolidated. There's a lot of ethnic whites, right? And and self-identifying ethnic whites. What role does this violence play in consolidating whiteness on the one hand and consolidating, say, Russian or Russian nationalism on the other? Well, I I think this is, this is, this is, this is very important. Um, I haven't talked about it today, uh, but if, if we look at, at uh, some of the first racially motivated lynchings in, in the U.S., they, they occur in the mid-19th century, and they're performed by, by uh, Irish immigrants, and, and certainly Irish immigrants at the very lowest rungs uh, with African Americans at that time, uh, in, particularly in cities like New York City, for example, and other, other cities as well. So in, in the, for example, in the early 1860s, we have, we have the Irish, and they're also, you know, there's the political context as well, which is that they... Uh, because of nativism, anti-Catholicism, they were supporting the Democratic Party, whereas the Republican Party had just come to power. It was, uh, uh, you know, was was advocating um, uh, abolitionism, or you know, at least the the stop of the, the spread of slavery. So that that's part of the the political dynamic as as well. And so certainly the, these 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 uh, lynchings that that Irish immigrants participate in are a way of expressing their their whiteness and their Sort of their, their 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 white American identity, but they're very complex events as well. I mean, it's a, it's ex- also expressing Irishness. Other sort of later uh, later contexts, um, you know, in Reconstruction, which I spoke about earlier, late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. So Southern white nationalism becomes very attached to to the performance of, of white supremacist violence. So so we definitely see how how whiteness, white nationalism becomes becomes attached to, to lynching violence. In the Russian context, um, as seen by someone like Khrushchevan, who I deal with extensively in my book and who's the first publisher of the first version of the protocols and almost certainly was involved in helping to ferment the Kishnev pogrom, um, what he's engaged in is not the fermenting of violence. He's engaged in self-defense. Uh, it's Jews who are engaged in violence. They're the ones who are 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 destroying the sinews of 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 of, of Russia uh, because of their economic rapacity, um, their um, their own extreme um, nationalism, and um, their refusal to assimilate. And um, so violence is not being perpetrated by those who, as we see it, are perpetrating violence. Um, they're engaged in completely justifiable um, self-defense uh, against the insidious forces of Jews. And, um, and, uh, and, and consequently, their activity, if, if anything, is inadequate given the onslaught that Jews represent. And... Um, and 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 these sorts of sentiments will be given um, uh, added added weight um, with the um, um, the 
the uh, consolidation of notions of Judeo-Bolshevism um, in the coming in in in, in subsequent uh, decades, and so. Um, it's um, once again, it's the victims of violence who are seen as the perpetrators of violence and those who engage in violence who are seen as um, as defenders, defenders of, of a Russia that's uh, that's being overwhelmed by swarms of, of, of Jews. And um, so, um, yes, I think your point is 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 well taken, Sean. That was Stephen Zipperstein and Michael Pfeiffer. Stephen J. Zipperstein is the Daniel E. Koshland Professor in Jewish Culture and History at Stanford University. He's the author and editor of nine books, including The Jews of Edessa, A Cultural History, 1794 to 1881, and Imagining Russian Jewry, Memory, History, Identity. His most recent book is Pogrom, Kishinev and the Tilt of History, published by Livewright. Michael J. Pfeiffer is professor of history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the CUNY Graduate Center. He has authored or edited five books on the history of American and global lynching and collective violence. His most recent book is The Roots of Rough Justice, Origins of American Lynching, published by the University of Illinois Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
the crew. 